Section 57 of La Sommoir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. La Sommoir by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Fourth part of Chapter 12. She raised her eyes again. She was in front of the slaughter-houses which were being pulled down. Through the gaps in the façade one could see the dark, stinking courtyards still damp with blood. And when she had gone down the boulevard again, she also saw the La Riboisière Hospital, with its long grey wall, above which she could distinguish the mournful, fan-like wings, pierced with windows at even distances. A door in the wall filled the neighbourhood with dread. It was the door of the dead, in solid oak and without a crack, as stern and as silent as a tombstone. Then to escape her thoughts she hurried further down till she reached the railway bridge. The high parapets of riveted sheet-iron hid the line from view. She could only distinguish a corner of the station standing out against the luminous horizon of Paris with a vast roof black with coal-dust. Through the clear space she could hear the engines whistling and the cars being shunted, in token of colossal hidden activity. Then a train passed by, leaving Paris, with puffing breath and a growing rumble. And all she perceived of this train was a white plume, a sudden gust of steam which rose above the parapet and then evaporated. But the bridge had shaken, and she herself seemed impressed by this departure at full speed. She turned round as if to follow the invisible engine, the noise of which was dying away. She caught a glimpse of open country through a gap between tall buildings. Oh, if only she could have taken a train and gone far away, far away from this poverty and suffering, she might have started an entirely new life. Then she turned to look at the posters on the bridge sidings. One was on pretty blue paper, and offered a fifty-franc reward for a lost dog. Someone must really have loved that dog. Gervaise slowly resumed her walk. In the smoky fog which was falling, the gas-lamps were being lighted up, and the long avenues which had grown bleak and indistinct suddenly showed themselves plainly again, sparkling to their full length and piercing through the night, even to the vague darkness of the horizon. A great gust swept by. The widened spaces were lighted up with girdles of little flames shining under the far-stretching moonless sky. It was the hour when, from one end of the boulevard to the other, the dram-shops and the dancing-halls flamed gaily as the first glasses were merrily drunk and the first dance began. It was the great fortnightly payday, and the pavement was crowded with jostling revellers on the spree. There was a breath of merrymaking in the air, deuced fine revelry, but not objectionable so far. Fellows were filling themselves in the eating-houses. Through the lighted windows you could see people feeding, with their mouths full and laughing, without taking the trouble to swallow first. Drunkards were already installed in the wine-shops, squabbling and gesticulating, 
and there was a cursed noise on all sides, voices shouting amidst the constant clatter of feet on the pavement. "'Say, are you coming to sip? Make haste, old man, I'll pay for a glass of bottled wine.' "'Here's Pauline, shan't we just laugh?' The doors swung to and fro, letting a smell of wine and a sound of cornet playing escape into the open air. There was a gathering in front of Père Colombe's L'Assommoir, which was lighted up like a cathedral for high mass. Mon Dieu, you would have said a real ceremony was going on, for several capital fellows with rounded paunches and swollen cheeks, looking for all the world like professional choristers, were singing inside. They were celebrating Saint Pay, of course, a very amiable saint, who no doubt keeps the cash-box in paradise. Only on seeing how gaily the evening began, the retired petty tradesmen who had taken their wives out for a stroll wagged their heads, and repeated that there would be any number of drunken men in Paris that night. And the night stretched very dark, dead-like and icy, above this revelry, perforated only with lines of gas-lamps extending to the four corners of heaven. Gervaise stood in front of La Sommoire, thinking that if she had had a couple of sous she could have gone inside and drunk a dram. No doubt a dram would have quieted her hunger. Ah, oh, what a number of drams she had drunk in her time! Liquor seemed good stuff to her after all. And from outside she watched the drunk-making machine, realising that her misfortune was due to it, and yet dreaming of finishing herself off with brandy on the day she had some coin. But a shudder passed through her hair as she saw it was now almost dark. Well, the night-time was approaching. She must have some pluck and sell herself coaxingly, if she didn't wish to kick the bucket in the midst of the general revelry. Looking at other people gorging themselves didn't precisely fill her own stomach. She slackened her pace again and looked around her. There was a darker shade under the trees— Few people passed along, only folks in a hurry, who swiftly crossed the boulevards. And on the broad, dark, deserted footway, where the sound of the revelry died away, women were standing and waiting. They remained for long intervals, motionless, patient, and as stiff-looking as the scrubby little plane trees. Then they slowly began to move, dragging their slippers over the frozen soil, taking ten steps or so, and then waiting again rooted as it were to the ground there was one of them with a huge body and insect-like arms and legs wearing a black silk rag with a yellow scarf over her head there was another one tall and bony who was bareheaded and wore a servant's apron and others too old ones plastered up and young ones so dirty that a rag-picker would not have picked them up however chavez tried to learn what to do by imitating them Girlish-like emotion tightened her throat. She was hardly aware whether she felt ashamed or not. She seemed to be living in a horrible dream. For a quarter of an hour she remained standing erect. Men hurried by without even turning their heads. Then she moved about in her turn, and venturing to accost a man who was whistling with his hands in his pockets, she murmured in a strangled voice, "'Sir, listen a moment.' The man gave her a side glance, and then went off, whistling all the louder. 
Gervaise grew bolder, and with her stomach empty she became absorbed in this chase, fiercely rushing after her dinner, which was still running away. She walked about for a long while, without thinking of the flight of time or of the direction she took. Around her the dark, mute women went to and fro under the trees like wild beasts in a cage. They stepped out of the shade like apparitions, and passed under the light of a gas-lamp with their pale masks fully apparent. Then they grew vague again as they went off into the darkness, with a white strip of petticoat swinging to and fro. Men let themselves be stopped at times, talked jokingly, and then started off again laughing. Others would quietly follow a woman to her room, discreetly, ten paces behind. There was a deal of muttering, quarrelling in an undertone, and furious bargaining, which suddenly subsided into profound silence. And as far as Gervaise went, she saw these women standing like sentinels in the night. They seemed to be placed along the whole length of the boulevard. As soon as she met one, she saw another twenty paces further on, and the file stretched out unceasingly. Entire Paris was guarded. She grew enraged on finding herself disdained, and changing her place, she now perambulated between the Chaussée de Clignancourt and the Grand Rue of La Chapelle. All were beggars. Sir, just listen. But the men passed by. She started from the slaughterhouses, which stank of blood. She glanced on her way at the old Hôtel Boncoeur, now closed. She passed in front of the La Riboisière Hospital and mechanically counted the number of windows that were illuminated with a pale, quiet glimmer, like that of night-lights at the bedside of some agonizing sufferers. She crossed the railway bridge as the trains rushed by with a noisy rumble, rending the air in twain with their shrill whistling. Ah, oh, how sad everything seemed at night-time! Then she turned on her heels again and filled her eyes with the sight of the same houses, doing this ten and twenty times without pausing, without resting for a minute on a bench. No, no one wanted her. Her shame seemed to be increased by this contempt. She went down towards the hospital again, and then returned towards the slaughterhouses. It was her last promenade, from the blood-stained courtyards where animals were slaughtered, down to the pale hospital wards where death stiffened the patients stretched between the sheets. It was between these two establishments that she had passed her life. Sir, just listen. But suddenly she perceived her shadow on the ground. When she approached a gas lamp it gradually became less vague, till it stood out at last in full force. An enormous shadow it was, positively grotesque, so portly had she become. Her stomach, breast, and hips, all equally flabby, jostled together, as it were. She walked with such a limp that the shadow bobbed almost topsy-turvy at every step she took. It looked like a real punch. Then as she left the street lamp behind her, the punch grew taller, becoming in fact gigantic, filling the whole boulevard, bobbing to and fro, in such style that it seemed fated to smash its nose against the trees or the houses. Mon Dieu, how frightful she was! She had never realized her disfigurement so thoroughly, and she could not help looking at her shadow. 
Indeed, she waited for the gas lamp, still watching the punch as it bobbed about. Ah, she had a pretty companion beside her. What a figure! It ought to attract the men at once. And at the thought of her unsightliness, she lowered her voice, and only just dared to stammer beside the passers-by. Sir, just listen. It was now getting quite late. Matters were growing bad in the neighbourhood. The eating-houses had closed, and voices gruff with drink could be heard disputing in the wine-shops. Revelry was turning to quarrelling and fisticuffs. A big ragged chap roared out, "'I'll knock you to bits. Just count your bones!' A large woman had quarrelled with a fellow outside a dancing-place, and was calling him a dirty blackguard and lousy bum, whilst he on his side just muttered under his breath. Drink seemed to have imparted a fierce desire to indulge in blows, and the passers-by, who were now less numerous, had pale, contracted faces. There was a battle at last. One drunken fellow came down on his back with all four limbs raised in the air, whilst his comrade, thinking he had done for him, ran off with his heavy shoes clattering over the pavement. Groups of men sang dirty songs, and then there would be long silences, broken only by hiccups or the thud of a drunk falling down. Gervaise still hobbled about, going up and down, with the idea of walking forever. At times she felt drowsy and almost went to sleep, rocked, as it were, by her lame leg. Then she looked round her with a start, and noticed she had walked a hundred yards unconsciously. Her feet were swelling in her ragged shoes. The last clear thought that occupied her mind was that her hussy of a daughter was perhaps eating oysters at that very moment. Then everything became cloudy, and albeit she remained with open eyes, it required too great an effort for her to think. The only sensation that remained to her, in her utter annihilation, was that it was frightfully cold, so sharply, mortally cold she had never known the like before. Why, even dead people could not feel so cold in their graves. With an effort she raised her head, and something seemed to lash her face. It was the snow which had at last decided to fall from the smoky sky. Fine, thick snow, which the breeze swept round and round. For three days it had been expected, and what a splendid moment it chose to appear. Woken up by the first gusts, Gervaise began to walk faster. Eager to get home, men were running along with their shoulders already white. And as she suddenly saw one who, on the contrary, was coming slowly towards her under the trees, she approached him, and again said, "'Sir, just listen.' The manner stopped, but he did not seem to have heard her. He held out his hand, and muttered in a low voice, "'Charity, if you please.' They looked at one another. "'Ah, oh, mon Dieu! They were reduced to this.' Père Bru begging, Madame Coupeau walking the streets. They remained stupefied in front of each other. They could join hands as equals now. The old workman had prowled about the whole evening, not daring to stop anyone, and the first person he accosted was as hungry as himself. Lord, was it not pitiful to have toiled for fifty years and be obliged to beg! 
to have been one of the most prosperous laundresses in the Rue de la Goutte d'Or, and to end beside the gutter. They still looked at one another. Then, without saying a word, they went off in different directions, under the lashing snow. It was a perfect tempest. On these heights, in the midst of this open space, the fine snow revolved round and round, as if the wind came from the four corners of heaven. You could not see ten paces off. Everything was confused in the midst of this flying dust. The surroundings had disappeared. The boulevard seemed to be dead, as if the storm had stretched the silence of its white sheet over the hiccups of the last drunkards. Gervaise still went on, blinded, lost. She felt her way by touching the trees. As she advanced, the gas lamps shone out amid the whiteness like torches. Then suddenly, whenever she crossed an open space, these lights failed her. She was enveloped in the whirling snow, unable to distinguish anything to guide her. Below stretched the ground, vaguely white. Grey walls surrounded her. And when she paused, hesitating and turning her head, she divined that behind this icy veil extended the immense avenue with interminable vistas of gas-lamps, the black and deserted infinite of Paris asleep. She was standing where the outer boulevard meets the boulevards Magenta and Arnano, thinking of lying down on the ground, when suddenly she heard a footfall. She began to run. But the snow blinded her, and the footsteps went off without her being able to tell whether it was to the right or to the left. At last, however, she perceived a man's broad shoulders, a dark form which was disappearing amid the snow. Oh, she wouldn't let this man get away, and she ran on all the faster, reached him, and caught him by the blouse. Sir, sir, just listen. The man turned round. It was Goujet. End of fourth part of chapter 12 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey